Welcome back to another very special episode of the End of Sport podcast. As you'll soon hear, this episode is quite different from our normal releases. Rather than a public interview, we're actually publishing a panel session on the importance of public sports scholarship, particularly in the context of the global pandemic. This episode was recorded in Montreal on April 22nd, 2022, at the annual meeting of the North American Society for the Sociology of Sport, or NAS, as you'll hear in the recording. We're grateful for the opportunity to have these discussions at NAS and help mobilize the academic community around the importance of critical public work. But before we get to the show, I'd like to take a moment to talk about something that's really, really important to us. And that's accessibility and inclusion in both our work and in our action. I often ask myself why we, as critical scholars, tend to completely ignore the things that we advocate for in our work when it seems to suit us. What I mean by this is, how can critical scholars who supposedly deeply understand issues of inequality, harm, injustice, and inclusion seemingly ignore those issues when it's in our interest? For example, when we're organizing our conferences or our workshops. Of course, hypocrisy is part of life for anyone working and living under advanced capitalist conditions. But at what point does that hypocrisy lead to the manifestation of real harm and exclusion for some of the most vulnerable people in our disciplines and in our broader communities? Academic conferences have always been brutally inaccessible. They discriminate against early career researchers, precarious workers, graduate students, and non-university affiliated folks. And that discrimination is not evenly faced across class, race, gender, sexuality, and ability status lines. Academic conferences also create the conditions necessary for the establishment of an academic hierarchy that privileges a small group of scholars. They charge exorbitant fees for participation, they're often held in some of the most expensive cities and are almost always structured in a way that privileges a particular academic class. And they have, in my experiences, shown that they are conceived of in perhaps the most ableist way possible. And what is this for? All to take money from our communities and subsidize the existence of billionaires like the Hiltons or Marriott's. And the pandemic has only made this worse by ushering in a new group of folks who, for entirely legitimate reasons, may not feel comfortable or have the ability to attend a mass gathering event. And what do these folks miss because they don't want exposure to a deadly virus as a prerequisite for participating in their academic community? They miss out on so many of the opportunities that we have allowed to gain prominence and importance in our fields. They miss out on social networking for jobs. They miss out on sharing their work with their peers. They miss out on dinners or social events that act as veils for the accumulation of social capital. They miss out on the opportunity to improve their work through peer review. And they miss out on having their voice in our discipline's most important issues. Now, more than ever, it's up to us to push back against the creation and normalization of what some have called a second or even third academic class. The responsibility falls on all of us to put pressure on our academic institutions, our universities, our disciplines, and yes, our academic associations to put in the work despite all costs to make our fields accessible for all. 
conferences can certainly be generative spaces. We don't want to understate that. It can be useful for scholars looking for a community of like-minded people working on some of the key issues in our fields that we often engage with. Hell, Johanna and I were at this conference and by definition complicit in this as well. But at what point in our quest to return to so-called normalcy are we falling victim to the very systems that we identify in our work as problematically contributing to a social structure that discriminates based on race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, credential, etc. If the last two years has taught us anything, we need to rethink the systems that we have allowed to proliferate in order to address the mass inequalities and harm that folks face in our racial capitalist, patriarchal, heteronormative, ableist, and increasingly exclusionary society. The Academy is not immune from participation in this system. In fact, it's long been a key cog in the maintenance of that system. And it's up to us as critical scholars to push back where and how we can. That means putting pressure on our universities, on our disciplines, and our associations to make our communities and our work more accessible, including putting in the work to offer our conference proceedings online for folks who cannot or do not want to attend in person. That means pushing government to refund higher education to make our work accessible rather than simply seeking out grants to cover open access rules. That means rethinking our discipline so that less emphasis is placed on status and networking to be successful in the field. In doing so, we can reimagine an academy that is more accessible to all folks in our quest for knowledge production and dissemination. But it takes real work to do this, and that's not lost on us. In the lead-up to organizing this panel, I'd been thinking about ways in which we can make our work more accessible and more widely available for folks who may not have access to the ivory tower and or the ability to attend NAS, not to mention the desire given that we are in the midst of a global pandemic. This panel was focused on the importance of critical public scholarship, and I thought, how can we have such a panel that is entirely paywalled in the ivory tower and inaccessible for folks who are not comfortable returning to in-person events? I decided the only way to actually put this panel on was to, despite a lack of support from the association and the field in general, put the event on in a hybrid manner and eventually publish this in a podcast form. None of this is to pat ourselves on the back. We simply think that we have to start resisting the decisions of the academic communities in which we're part of and doing it vocally and loudly. When thinking of the ways in which we can mobilize against an academic system that contributes to inequality, I think we need to look at small forms of resistance and disobedience to build momentum. The Academy has long been willingly complicit in erecting some of the most harmful systems of oppression and discrimination. So taking that on requires a concerted effort from all of us. So I'll simply close with a call to all scholars on conference planning committees, association executive boards, editorial boards, or any other influential position in our disciplines. And that call is to loudly object to exclusionary decisions that are made, even if it puts our positions at risk. 
So we really hope you enjoy this really wonderful and brilliant panel discussion on the importance of challenges within and strategies for engagement with public scholarship in the Contemporary Academy. I want to start first off by kind of just thanking all of the, the brilliant panelists that we have from uh, some people coming from the US on Zoom and also our brilliant panelists um, uh, in the room here for, for taking the time um, to, to share their insights on public uh, scholarship because I, I, I think it's, a, it's really a vital piece of what we're doing um, and we need to have these discussions broadly speaking about the role of public scholarship but also the challenges and, and issues associated with that. And I know Shereen Ahmed and, and Johanna Mellis, nice to meet you for the first time. Um, are, uh, there's a wonderful uh, plenary session tomorrow. So this, I think, is a great kind of prelude for that. Um, I hope it is, anyway. So first, I'll introduce myself. I'm Derek Silva, Associate Professor at King's University College and co-host of the End of Sport podcast with Johanna Mellis and Nathan Common-Lamb there. Um, and well, I'll go through and just introduce each one of our panelists um, for you. I, I, I think I'll do the introduction and then we can have some opening remarks from each. So joining us today in person are Letitia Brown, uh, an ass assistant professor at Virginia Tech and incoming assistant professor at the University of Cincinnati. Letitia has published numerous brilliant public works in places like First and Penn, Engaging Sports, The Shadow League, and has appeared on podcasts including Crossing the Lane Lines, the Black Athlete podcast, both of which I am a personally a huge fan of, and The End of Sport, which I am less uh, a fan of personally. Next, we have Courtney Zito, who's an assistant professor at Queen's University and author of one of my favorite books, uh, Changing on the Fly, Hockey Through the Voices of South Asian uh, Canadians, published with Rutgers University Press in 2020. Courtney is managing editor uh, for Hockey and Society, associate editor for Engaging Sports, and is it executive producer of Revolutions? <laughs> and executive producer of Revolutions, a documentary on bike waste and uh, the circular economy, premiering actually tomorrow at NAS at 3.30 in Salon 1, so the next room over there. So, yes, yeah, so hopefully folks show up for that, uh, for that as well. Courtney has appeared on or pub been published in the Globe and Mail, Sports Illustrated, uh, Rabble, Interrupt Magazine, CBC is The Current, and on a number of podcasts. Again, uh, this is a kind of running theme. Again, uh, one including the End of Sport podcast, and also buy it as well. Uh, Jules Boykoff is a uh, professor of politics and government at Pacific University and author of Olympians Inside the Fight Against Capitalist Megasports in Los Angeles, Tokyo, and Beyond. Published in 2020 with Fernwood, Power Games, uh, Political History of the Olympics, published with Verso in 2016, among many, many others. Jules has also been an active public scholar, publishing on myriad topics in outlets such as the Washington Post, the New York Times, The Nation, The Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, NBC, NewsThink, and many others, and has appeared on television on BBC, Democracy Now!, CBC, CNN, and Al Jazeera, again, amongst many others. 
And joining us today from all over the United States, and Victoria, it's four something in the morning there, so everyone give a special shout out to, to Victoria. Um, Victoria Jackson is a clinical assistant professor at Arizona State University who has published in the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, Boston Globe, the Chronicle of Higher Education, Slate, Independent, and The Athletic, where she has recently joined as contributor to Culture Vertical. Victoria has also appeared on 60 Minutes to discuss American college sports and in fr is a frequent uh, podcast, radio, TV, and documentary film commentator on sport and society. Tracy Canada is an assistant professor of anthropology, concurrent faculty in Africana studies, and affiliated with the Initiative on Race and Resilience at the University of Notre Dame. Tracy is finishing her book, which we're very much looking forward to, on the experiences of black college football players, tentatively titled Tackling the Everyday Race, Family, and Nation in Big Time College Football. And Tracy has published a number of public pieces as well in outlets like Black Perspectives, Scientific American, Sapiens, Field Sites, and Anthropology News. And finally, Nathan Coleman Lamb is a lecturing fellow at Duke University. Nathan is the author of Game Misconduct, Injury, Fandom, and Business of Sport, and The Business of Sport, I should say published with Fernwood in 2018, and has authored a number of public pieces in outlets such as LA Times, The Guardian, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Time Magazine, The Daily Beast, Jacobin, and many others. Finally, Nathan is also, like I mentioned, co-host of The End of Sport with Johanna Mellis, who's here. So as you can tell, we have a jam-packed panel with folks who have done amazing and diverse and in incredible, brilliant, public work. So I'm really looking forward to us going through some of our experiences, or not me, the panelists going through some of their experiences with public, socio public sociology, public scholarship, public history, public anthropology, and just talking about those experiences and some of the challenges associated with that. So hopefully we can kind of build a community or work to build a community of public scholars who are interested in, in, in amplifying voices in sports studies. So let's just jump right into it. There'll be time at the end for a Q&A, um, but I'm going to moderate this session. There's a series of questions that, that I have that I want to pose to uh, the panelists, and then I'll open it up to a Q&A at the end. I don't know how the tech will work, but we'll figure that out um, when we get there. So. The first question, and, and I'm asking all panelists to keep this very brief because I know we can go on for a long time. Um, so hopefully keep the remarks to like a minute or so. Can you tell us how you first got started in your public sports scholarship? And, and I'd like to start online. So I'll start with Nathan. Uh, Nathan, how did you first get started in your public sports scholarship? Uh, thanks, Derek. And the first thing I wanna say, actually, I don't wanna take too much of my time here, but I wanna actually really thank Derek for organizing this panel and making it accessible remotely for us. Um, given the ongoing nature of the pandemic, I think that's a really important uh, choice and a political choice as well. Um, and I'm grateful for it. So thank you, Derek, because that was really your initiative and the work that you put in to make that possible. Um, to quickly answer the question, you know, I have to say that for me, um, for a long time, I kind of bought in or internalized the academic notion that the way we were supposed to contribute was through academic venues, right? Through peer reviewed venues. That was the way that our scholarship and our interventions of the form they were supposed to take. Uh, and that really, I think, influenced me throughout grad school. I kind of like regret that, frankly, thinking back upon it. Um, 
it wasn't until, um, to be honest, that that book came out in 2018 and there was a feeling, you know, the, the publisher I had, Fernwood, was interested in trying to make as kind of a broad an, an impact with the book as possible. It was sort of a crossover trade academic piece. Um, and, you know, I started to try my hand at writing op-eds, um, then slightly longer pieces of that nature. And in doing, in going through that process, you know, I came to realize how much more gratifying it was, given that the entire project of the scholarship itself um, was politically oriented. Obviously, having a political impact was a fairly meaningful part of the process. Um, and, you know, too often our academic work ends up kind of siloed. Um, and so sort of seeing the impact of that, um, it just kind of, it pushed me to do more, more, more. And then the other piece, I, I mean, I, I can't deny is that when 2020 hit and, and COVID kind of came to consume our lives, um, you know, one, it created urgency for the kind of scholarship that I was trying to produce. The, the themes around harm and health and sport were more kind of apparent and prevalent than ever. Um, and then at the same time, you know, it had an impact on my capacity to produce more traditional academic scholarship, right? Because the, the pace of life, the, the, the time I had to invest in that kind of work, it just changed completely. Um, and, you know, for me, that was like, you know, the silver lining in this really, you know, tremendously difficult period that we've all gone through. Um, but, you know, it's been extremely gratifying to me to, to be putting myself out there more in that way, because I think that, that that really is the point of our work. Tracy, you're next on the on the screen there. Thanks for having me and hope everybody can hear me all right. Um, I would just like to say that like just initially starting out, something that was really interesting to me about public facing work was that I was talking to a lot of anthropologists that had no idea what I did, even though a lot of athletes end up in anthropology classes and end up being anthropology majors. And so I thought that that was something, there, there was a, a really interesting disconnect that was going on there that needed to be bridged in some way. And I knew that me just talking to people in my department wasn't going to be enough. And so I wanted to find a way to reach, I mean, this is a very, it's a very academic argument, right? But to reach the people that were in my discipline that would have to interact with the people that I was working with. And I knew that they needed to know more about their lived experiences because that affected what happened when they came, <clears throat> excuse me, what happened when they came into the classroom. Um, and so I was very invested in, um, if you, if you look at my publication history, um, publishing in outlets that were specifically speaking to anthropologists and then hopefully were branching out. Um, but that was, that was my initial goal. But then to, to piggyback on what Nathan said, I was a 2020 grad, um, from grad school. So I was, you know, in the middle of, I'm still in the middle of this whole pandemic thing. Um, but to come out of school at that time, um, and to do the work that I'm doing to come out of school at that time and do the work that I'm doing and see what was going on and to recognize that I potentially had something to say, but also that I was, it was fresh in my mind in a particular way because I just finished. Um, that's the thing, like, that's what I'm writing now is trying to, to mobilize this idea that we are in a very particular moment and that we do have something very particular to say about it and that we can reach an audience that might think that they know something about it and might need to know more or, um, just needs to know like a different perspective of it. Um, and so that's where I'm at now is that we're still living through this moment and I'm still trying to figure out, you know, like how to write a book. And so um, those two things are going together in a, in a very tangible way for me. Victoria. Thank you for not having me lead off. <laughs> I'm like still waking up. Um, yeah, I, I guess I would say, you know, this is awesome because I think we're going to all answer this differently instead of kind of saying the same thing in different ways. Um, I apparently I'm in the business of blowing up binaries, um, false binaries. And I like to joke. Um, so I was a college athlete and a professional track and field athlete. 
And I like to joke that I am, you know, I'm a product of American college sports and I drink the amateurism Kool-Aid um, because I was a good college athlete, right? I was like good at being coached. <laughs> I was part of the team project of winning all that good stuff. And so, you know, when I was serious and scholarly, I was a historian and doing serious historian work. And then when I was like serious about being an athlete, I was all in with that and never like bridged those things because I was drinking the Kool-Aid. And it, it took a long time to kind of break down that thinking. And I came very late to sports in my academic training, actually. Um, the irony was that I was studying the history of like <laughs> segregation and education in US history. And so it was very easy to pivot to sport, <laughs> building that kind of foundation and base, kind of similar to what we saw with Taylor Branch um, publishing The Shame of College Sports in 2011. You know, this is somebody who's citing civil rights and then using that civil rights lens to look at college sports. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of faculty um, are kind of grumbly and grumpy around this kind of increasing instructional and research divide. And um, I'm fortunate to be at a place like Arizona State, which is also in the business of like blowing up tired old kind of structures and institutions and teaching is really where I learned how to um, you know, do the things that we talk about when we talk about public scholarship, like speaking to an educated general audience, like trimming the fat, <laughs> you know, what is the big point here? And so um, building out our sports history curriculum as a graduate student at ASU was my kind of way into realizing a, like, there's something really interesting here in the sport and society space and be like, I needed a long time to practice how to talk about this stuff in an engaging and exciting way. So teaching was my kind of set stone to engaging in public work. Great, yeah, and some common themes that I'm sure we'll, we'll chat about in the Q&A and as we, as we move on. So I'd like to, yeah, move on to the in-person in guests. Yeah, the, mic, the mic's on, everything's good, so. Awesome, so for me, um, I got into public work as a graduate student when I was invited to write for the Shadow League. I had never really considered doing op-ed pieces until I had the invitation from Yusuf Khan, but it's really pushed me to be a different kind of and better writer. And so when Yusuf started his own platform, First in Pen, he reached out to me to be like a um, contributing author for him. And I was like, oh, that's amazing because I've loved your work as an editor. And so it's just been this really amazing kind of opportunity to write beyond academic scholarship, which at times can be limiting because there are like these parameters that you have to fit into in order to be considered a certain kind of sociologist. And because my background is in Africana studies and I've never actually, even though I went to like the University of Texas, which has this very kind of mechanic way of producing students, I never considered myself to be a quote unquote proper sociologist. I like to think of myself more as a messy sociologist and I think it's much better to be that way. And so for me, public scholarship is a way to engage with a broader audience to think differently, write more critically and freely. Um, so I guess I started creating a, a public profile just off the heels of my master's. Um, I did my undergrad at the University of British Columbia in sport management, and I really came out thinking that sport was the greatest thing in the world. I went to the University of Toronto and like, hold the phone. Um, and I was like, whoa, the world is racist and everything is wrong. Um, and suddenly I had a lot of ideas to write about, and I'd always been a writer. Um, so I started 
my blog called The Rabbit Hole at that time, just to try to make sense of the things that I had been learning in grad school and I thought were really interesting. And really it was a blog for like my family to read and, and friends on Facebook. Um, I guess a, a, a digital extension of the newsletter that I used to write as a kid. And my mom would sell it to her friends at work for like a quarter. Um, and, and at the same time, Dr. Mark Norman had created uh, Hockey and Society. So I kind of had two blogs going at the same time. And um, that's just really kind of how it started is that we had the, the advent of Blogger and WordPress coming out. And it was just so easy to, to put your thoughts out in the, into the world for better or for worse. And Jules. So for me, a place to start is to divide out public intellectual work from scholar activism. So for me, public intellectual work is about penning essays for publications, about appearing on television, radio, podcasts. It's about entering debates against people when they want to do them publicly. Scholar activism, at least in my mind, is more embedding yourself in critical fashion inside of movements and groups that are fighting for change. And that might not lead to the former of uh, doing public intellectual work. It might just mean you're a human alongside other humans working and trying to make a result happen in your community. And so for me, moving into sports scholarship in a public way was uh, started for me in Portland, where I live, Portland, Oregon, where we had an owner of the Portland Timbers and Thorns Soccer Club, a guy named Merritt Paulson, who along with his father, Henry Paulson, the former Treasury Secretary under George W. Bush, they owned the team and they were trying to get $85 million in public money that would go to roads and schools and that kind of thing to throw into refurbishing the stadium. So me, just as a person that lived in Portland, I was not going to go for that. And so I joined up with other people in the community. There were numerous community groups all around Portland, uh, neighborhood associations and so on. Went to a lot of meetings, talked to a lot of city councilors and so on. Um, I also at that time started writing about this, wrote some essays for the local newspaper called The Oregonian and um, teamed up with a, a great person who I imagine many of you know named Dave Zirin a good friend of mine who, with whom I've had the good fortune of writing numerous, numerous essays over the years. And we teamed up on this, and we started banging away at the, what we viewed as the unfairness of it. And so I guess I say that to, first of all, Victoria, I'm not setting up a binary for you to explode here, because I do see these sort of interchanging in a particular way, but that's the way I organize it. For those that are keeping uh, track of their public sociology bingo card a la Michael Burroway, I would say that uh, public intellectual work is more the traditional um, public sociology that he wrote about, whereas when I'm talking about scholar activism, I think that veers more toward his organic public sociology. That's a, a, a great launching point. I think like um, we've all covered a lot of the, the motivations for why, why we do what we do. So I, I hope, hopefully that will be a thread we kind of tease out uh, throughout the whole thing. Um, I'd like to, to, to move to starting up the discussion on an optimistic note after we've kind of introduced the motives, optimistic note. What can we like be gained? What can be gained by doing this public work? We'll get to some of the challenges and the risks later, but what can be gained? And I'd like to start with, with Tracy. Um, what, in your view, what can be gained by in doing public work, either anthropology, history, sociology, any public scholarship? I think there are benefits for almost everyone that's involved in it. And there are plenty of different pockets of people that are involved, which to me is really interesting, right? So as the scholar that's writing, like it's a it's an entirely different networking opportunity for 
us to get out of our um, our departments, right? Like our disciplines, our universities, um, and to to meet other people that are interested in the same work, right? And I think that I think that this has shown me that in a completely different way than how um, writing articles or working on my book has done that. Um, so that's one thing on the side for me, right? But um, because I work specifically with Black college football players, the writing that I do has reached the students in my classes in a very particular way and has led to fascinating conversations um, and interactions with the students that come through my classes. Um, I'm also at Notre Dame, right? So like that's a, it's a very particular type of football school. Um, so the work that I do fits really well with the students that I have. Um, and so to, to be writing the stuff that I'm writing and to be interacting with the students that I'm interacting with on a pretty regular basis, it's giving them the opportunity to think through their own experiences in a completely different way to recognize that their own experiences can be theorized, which is something that I think that they don't often hear. Um, and for them to reflect on it and potentially push back on it, right? Like if it's, if there's someone that they see in a classroom that has a degree, which doesn't mean a lot, but does mean something, right? That is saying that what they're going through is worthwhile and should be studied and they need to be thinking critically about it. And this isn't just football players, but it's also, you know, like all college athletes. Um, that's, I imagine is, I imagine, and I've been told that that is something empowering to them. Right. And that's part of the main reason that I'm doing this in the first place, um, is because, um, the, the people that I work with, I want to have access to the work that I'm doing, because I think that there should be that type of connection, right? Like the work that I'm doing is not just for academics. Um, it can't just be for me to get tenure. It has to be um, it has to be able to be accessed and reached by the people that I'm working with, because that was my whole point, right? Like as an anthropologist, I don't spend years and years of my time with groups of people to then just write about them without their input and then to get credit for it myself, right? Like there are anthropologists that do that. I teach against them actually. Um, but like, that's not, that's not my motivation. And so, um, the, the fact that I have these students and that I'm able to interact with them. And then I get emails from people all over. Um, like that's, that's really motivating for me too. And I think that that's something that is um, pretty positive about this type of, this type of work. Um, but overall to me, that is to say that, and this has been picked up on and I'm sure it'll come up again, right? Is that the stuff that we're doing should be accessible. And I don't think that, um, I also don't think that academic writing has to be unaccessible, right? Like I think that we can write articles and we can write books and we can write things that are um, that are peer reviewed that are still accessible. But that seems to that seems to be like a whole different conversation, which is a fascinating thing. But you know, we don't have to get into that now. Um, but I think that the fact that um, public writing does push you to have to be accessible in a particular way, right? Like to craft arguments that um, the the way that I always phrase it is that like I have my mom read everything that I publish. And if she understands it, who is someone that like doesn't understand football, but for whatever reason, loved Peyton Manning, like that was her whole thing. Um, if she understands what I'm saying, then I'm like, okay, we're good. Right. Like this is, this is something that can be understood that can be legible to, to a wider audience. Um, you don't have to have a degree to understand it, but also again, coming back to the fact that I'm an anthropologist, a lot of the people that are in my discipline that do have degrees don't care about what I'm writing. So I also need to reach them in a very particular way. Um, I think it's an interesting challenge for me as a scholar, but it's an exciting challenge because I am trying to reach multiple audiences and we are, I think, all trying to benefit from it because that is 
that is the potential of this, right? Like that there are benefits for everyone that's involved as long as we're reading it and thinking about it in a particular way. Yeah, and I think m many of us in the room hopefully are uh, are keen to burst through the academic paywall as much as we can, and that's probably a motivation for all, for a lot of our work. Jules, since you have the microphone still, Jules, I'd like to get your take on this um, uh, uh, on this question as well. What can be gained? From, from doing this sort of public work. First, I just want to say I love Tracy's mom test idea, and I think it's widely applicable. I, I really love that. Um, I think there, there is a lot to be gained. I mean, so much of the work that academics do that does eventually make it into the public sphere is mediated by somebody else. And so I think what we're actually talking about is instead of having that happen, doing the own, your own translation of, of your own work. I mean, I would emphasize that almost everything that I write in a more public sphere kind of way originates in scholarship that I've done in some fashion. So you're creating this foundation of scholarship from which you can build these um, interventions in, in the public sphere. And so it can happen where some other journalist, you know, calls you up. Oh, I saw I did a Google search or a DuckDuckGo search, I should say, uh, for, for your, um, and I came across your research. Would you mind if I interviewed you? And that's all great and fine. And I think it's wonderful that everyone in this whole room pretty much has done that. Um, but I also think that sometimes you, there's a real benefit to you just doing it yourself because in that mediation process, sometimes some of the finer details get lost or maybe that journalist had a plan when they went into it and they sort of take what you said that was like a minor thing and make it a major thing in their story. And so I think just having more uh, control of what you're saying in the public sphere can be really helpful. And also, of course, the, the engagement with a, with a wider audience. Uh, for better or worse, I know we're supposed to stay positive right now, but so I'll stay positive. I mean, wow, the people that come out uh, once you've written something and, that, and let you know what they think about it can be great, even if they're critics. I mean, you can really strike up fascinating conversations where you learn a lot, too, in that process and make contacts for down the road when you're writing about these things, people that you might like to reach out to uh, for their thoughts. So that's for starters. The next um, thing I'd like to move to is is talking about some of the strategies. So we've set this like kind of optimistic goal. Here's the goal. Here's the utopian of uh, uh, the utopia of public scholarship. Um, but what are the actual strategies that we use and we adopt? Right. The actual things that we do to build our profile, to get out there, to translate our academic stuff to community. So I'd like to start with Courtney because the microphone's right right in front of you. What are your sort of strategies that you use to create, to promote, to maintain your your public profile as a, as a sports scholar? I mean, I think to call it a strategy is very generous. Um, <laughs> the, the Twitter prof profile that I originally created was certainly not for this kind of work necessarily. It has definitely become curated to be a more professional, um, <laughs> quote unquote, professional space. Um, so I don't necessarily think that there's uh, like a, a guide step by step to how people should kind of create um, a space for themselves. Um, I think it has to be genuine in, in what you are good at. Um, so given that writing is generally the, the medium that I like to use, Twitter lends itself to that, but obviously podcasting and, and narrative creation in those ways um, can lead itself in different ways. I think Instagram is a great place that academics haven't necessarily used to tell visual stories because we don't generally have visual images to go with our research. Um, so I think that those are kind of spaces. Um, but I think using your account um, 
to or whatever account it may be, especially for grad students who don't feel like they have work to put out there, is to be a resource for other people. So you're reading a lot of things, you're in a lot of classes, you're meeting a lot of people. How can you kind of consolidate those things um, into um, into your space? So you know somebody releases a report, that's something that you can help um, promote to certain areas, but also to give it a, a critical eye and, and ask certain questions of, of those in power. Um, so yeah, I think just coming from a genuine place of this is this is my personality. These are the things that are that I'm interested in um, is the best way to go because I think a lot of people do come at it very strategically, and I think that that um, it doesn't necessarily read well. And then you don't have longevity in the medium as well because they're like, oh, I'm, I need to create a post today so people are are engaged. And I think that that's kind of a, a limiting and, and exhausting way to go about it. Victoria, I'd like to get your your insight on this question as well, the, the strategies that you adopt in your public profile, your public scholarship. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, I think my, my like number one principle is um, do good work and be patient. I think um, there's no rush to engaging um, and that, you know, it's it's best to know something inside and out before speaking on it, um, other than kind of rushing to join in a conversation about something that you might might be a little bit too far of a stretch for what you've been working on. So that's, that's kind of number one. Um, if we're thinking, and, and, you know, that applies in kind of all contexts when it's people reaching out to ask you to speak on something or if it's like engaging on Twitter, that sort of thing. Um, the saying yes piece, um, I, I attended a similar panel at the American Studies Association in 2019, and Amy Bass said something on that panel that really stuck with me, which was that she spent a long time in the early part of her career where she had pivoted to realizing she wanted to do a lot of this public work. She said yes to everything. Like if it meant, she told a story about like, you know, driving her kids and she was on the highway and she got a call. So she like pulled over on the shoulder to take the call. Right. Um, and, and using that as kind of an extreme <laughs> situation, not necessarily um, what she would do all the time, but, you know, illustrating the broader approach. Um, be generous is another principle. I think that's incredibly important. Um, Knowing when and how to say um, no <laughs> eventually is something that's important. And then more um, focused on like engaging on Twitter, be kind and be authentic. Um, and those are kind of my guiding principles for when I engage in this way. Um, I think I could address two more things. The first is um, when you decide you want to engage in kind of journalistic, you know, writing for public. Um, one thing, I remind myself of, and I think it's important for all of us to keep in mind is that like we need to detach our feelings and emotions from the pitch process um, because often times editors, um, you know, are making decisions when they have a billion things in front of them or like some crazy news event just happened and it's just not going to work out timing wise. It has nothing to do with like what you're presenting or like the value of it. Um, some of the most important pieces from my perspective that I've written, um, you know, I pitched like seven or eight places before it finally ran. And that was like a total, like, you know, it, it could have very easily just been something that ended up dying. And, you know, I think it's important to, to stay humble as a result of that. Um, just understanding from an editor's perspective, like how hard it is to figure out what's going to fit on a page, especially if it's a print um, newspaper. Um, and then an, another piece to that is if somebody is reaching out to you, the temptation to say yes because of the opportunity 
there's always a kind of a negotiation there. Like, you know, your expertise, right? You know, what's actually going to be timely and relevant. Um, and so maybe returning and saying, well, yeah, I could write about that, or I could write about this, which is related to that. But I think the more important thing here, and often I'm even that as a negotiation, I think, again, like my college athlete background is like, <laughs> I've been ingrained to be grateful for the experience <laughs> and just recognizing you have some agency here and, and can own what you know um, as part of that negotiation process. The fact that you mentioned editors and the other people that you have to kind of engage with throughout that negotiation process actually brings me to my next question, which is about the, the sort of networks that we have to create and forge and, and sometimes force, and so like not done in a violent way, but sometimes really like get in there. Um, so my next question is, is how important are those networks and how do you go about building networks with sports journalists, with people on Twitter, with editors, and how do you build these and then how do you maintain those relationships? So I'd like to start with Nathan on this, this question. You know, okay, I'm definitely going to address this, Derek, but I actually want to just circle back to something that you were talking about before quickly, that, that question of like sort of the benefits of public scholarship as an important part of this equation, because something that I think that was um, that Tracy and Jules were both addressing, which was really important, is a lot of mainstream sports media, that is what is generally occurring in the public around discussion with, with respect to discussions around sport, it doesn't center the voices of athletes, right? Um, and so one reason to engage in public scholarship, as opposed to, as Jules was saying, um, you know, talk to a journalist, let them frame their own story, give them a little bit of expertise. You can completely change the way in which journalism is done about sport, right? If you start to center the voices of athletes, like what Tracy does in her work, if you actually make that the point of the project, as opposed to just being incidental or interviewing 10 athletic directors, right? And 15 conference commissioners, uh, and then saying, well, the, the now, now I understand college sports. Well, let's flip it on its head and talk to the people who are actually affected, the people who are actually experiencing exploitation and harm. You can completely change what kind of conversation even occurs. So then when CBS calls you up for an interview, they don't have their own story that they just want to squeak something into. You've, you've actually made the story for them. You've changed what the story is because now they're talking about an issue that they would never even have considered addressing in the first place, which is putting exploitation first and at the center, right? And we know that sport is a site of exploitation and harm, but that's not the hegemonic narrative that's told about sport. Um, and I think that the point of public scholarship is taking up space in part, right? Like being counter hegemonic, showing people that there are different ways to address sport and also showing that people who suffer abuse and harm, right? That there are other people who connect with them, that they, that they don't have to be completely isolated and alienated. They don't have to feel like their experience is anomalous. Right. And we've had people in the end of sport reach out to us and say, like, it's just it's not that we're reinventing the wheel when it comes to what we're talking about. It's that just by talking about it. Right. And like showing that other people care, that actually makes a huge difference in its own right. Right. So I, I think that we really have to acknowledge that aspect. Like public scholarship matters because you can literally change the conversation about sports if you engage in public scholarship. Um, now, and I'm not, I'm not going to go on forever, but your question about networks is important because there's backlash to this, right? Like if you're going to try to change the conversation, the people who have their own agenda about sport are not going to like it. They're going to object very strenuously to the fact that you want to center athletes' voices instead of the voices of coaches or athletic directors or whoever else. And I mean, we know coordinated right-wing trolling is predicated on an attempt to isolate and individualize people to make a person feel like they're, un they're alone, they're unsupported. 
and the method is effective. Okay. Like we have to acknowledge that there are risks. This is what you're getting at. Derek. There, there are risks involved in public scholarship because there's a kind of war that's occurring in the public sphere over how we should understand sport. And it's part of broader cultural currents and political currents. Um, everything is sort of a space of contestation. And the best defense we have politically in every arena is solidarity. I mean, that's the bottom line. Solidarity is what provides material strength. It's just literally harder to silence and suppress larger groups of people, right? And also having those kinds of connections provides affective sustenance. It's the fuel of public scholarship. It's what allows you to keep going. But the problem is like, how do you achieve that, right? Um, and people have pointed this out to us before that, you know, if you have a podcast with three people involved, there's like a built-in safety net there. There's like a built-in, even at the very worst, even if we were isolated from the rest of the world and people, everyone disagreed with what we were talking about, well, at least you have three people that you can fall back on, right? And that, that matters. Um, so to me, part of this is I have come to view, this is a change for me as well, collaboration as a fundamental and entirely generative part of my professional identity. And I think that's something that we all have to embrace as people who want to be public scholars. You have to work together and it has to be in organic ways. Traditional academic practices around, you know, the wine and cheese and networking, you know, Tracy used that expression networking earlier, like traditional academic modes of networking, you know, they're, they're, they're self-serving and they're designed to get you ahead in your career, but they're not going to help you when the right-wing trolls come for you. That's not, that's not how you fight. You have to actually show your own support for other people, right? You have to be there when it's tough for them. You have to connect in meaningful ways with people before the, you know what, hits the fan. Um, and I think that, that's what's important. That's why Derek said this from the start, building communities around public scholarship are important right now in these moments before you get into those tough spaces because you want to have people who will be there for you. And when you're in those moments, you got to listen to those other people because it's really hard when you're on your own and you're isolated and everyone's coming for you. It's a terrifying moment to be in. The people who are not in that space in that moment, right, are going to have advice for you. And those are moments you got to listen. You got to listen to the people that you trust, I think, and fall back on, on their support and their solidarity. So part of this question or part, part of the, the, the question that I've constantly been grappling with myself with public scholarship, as folks talk to me and we chat about their own building campaigns, I was just talking to, to one um, scholar yesterday about like how, okay, so like I'm on the tenure track, I am relatively uh, less powerful at my uh, institution, how do I go about doing these things? There's a lot, it seems like there's a lot of risk, so how do I actually go about creating that public profile knowing that i have to do these things for tenure i have to do these things to to keep my job or to get a job so my next question is about um specific tips for early career researchers precarious workers or otherwise marginalized workers and i'd like to to start off with with courtney um to kind of do you have any specific tips for people who are, say, say grad students or uh, tenure track or even the precarious folks um, for, for engaging in, these, um, in this public work? Um, so my approach is probably not the approach of most people, and I would not necessarily advocate it for, for grad students um, because I didn't necessarily aim to end up in academia. I, I just kind of ended up here. Um, and happy to be here, but um, I've never thought of ten getting tenure as the end goal. So I do the work because it's the work that I like to do and it's the work that matters to me. 
Um, and I think of kind of a lot of the, the public writing as, um, as kind of correcting historical injustices to try to amplify those stories that have been consciously erased from uh, larger narratives. Um, so, I mean, if, if you can kind of get past that fear of, of trying to tick the boxes of what you need for tenure, um, I think that that's certainly helpful, but I'm also saying that from a very privileged position. Um, and I think that it has, in some ways, kind of become a brand unto itself, in that when I was on the job market, um, I had all this public facing work that was already out there. So there's kind of no secrets in that this is, this is the person that you're hiring. Um, I think it's perhaps a little bit different if you make that turn later on in your career. Um, but with respect to the trolls and stuff, like I don't even engage with them. Um, it takes up too much emotional uh, labor and, and actual time labor. So I don't really engage with those folks. Um, I think there's only one piece that's been particularly bad. It was a piece that I had done about um, violent gentlemen created a hat that looked like the Trump hat and it said, make hockey violent again. I had some thoughts. Um, and all the Trump supporters and, and people who liked that hat had some thoughts as well. So that was like a good 48 hours that I was just not on social media. But um, I think when I started blogging as a, as a grad student, I thought that if I could put words in the correct order, people would believe me and come over to the dark side. Um, and then I very quickly realized that it's not about any particular word order and explanation. It's like people will, will buy into it if they want to, and, and that's just something you have to accept. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think Roxanne Gay has a very good perspective on it. And she was like, Twitter is voluntary. <laughs> so social media is voluntary. You have no obligations to actually be in that space. It, it's supposed to be a fun space and an engaging space. Um, so I don't think that you have to come into it with um, kind of a combative uh, uh, perspective. Uh, certainly there, th that takes place. Um, but uh, I think for some folks, it's just, it's not a healthy um, environment to be in sometimes. So taking that time away is, is A-OK. -okay and and um, just kind of giving people space to, to accept that is part of the job as well. Uh, Letitia, I'd like to get your, your take on, the, if you have any specific tips for those uh, early career researchers, uh, marginalized folks, precarious workers, anyone um, for engaging in, the, in, this, in this public work? It's difficult, like, especially when you're in a precarious position. And I know that for me as a junior scholar who is a visibly black woman who does critical work on race and gender that I face a lot of criticism and I get targeted harassment. Like I've been embroiled in a situation that is so complex and violent that like there is an FBI investigation that like it's that level of seriousness but I cannot change the person that I am and I wouldn't want to and I've gotten to this point where I realize that like no matter what I do the harassment will continue so I might as well do the things that I want to do anyway because I love the things that I do so I'm going to do them and like Courtney said, like there are these spaces like Twitter that are voluntary. And even though I get these, you know, random DMs like, hey lady, would you like some reparations from me? Just about every week I get a DM like that, which makes absolutely no sense. 
like yesterday when 37 year old white man says it in his thing, I'm 37, I'm white, would you like reparations? And it's like, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't know what this is, I don't want this. Um, so I think like taking a step back in a way, but also like if the work that you wanna do is public facing, do that work. If tenure is your ultimate goal, figure out the things that you need in order to get there, but also do the things that you enjoy to make sure that you have this balance and find your allies because you cannot do this work alone. The reason that I have gotten tenure track positions is because I have cultivated relationships with people that have benefited me. I have several mentors because I know the value of mentorship and I meet people, I like people, I'm what people call a chatty Cathy. I like to talk to people and I make relationships and I maintain those relationships because I genuinely like folks. And I hope and feel that sometimes people genuinely like me back and it has served me well. And I try to you know, maintain those relationships and pay that forward because I wouldn't be sitting in this chair right now if I had not had mentors who helped build me up to be here today and I wanna do that for the next generation of people that come after me. And that's one of the reasons that I want tenure. Like tenure for me is not about me. It's about making sure that in 10 years, when we're talking about the number of black women tenured faculty, it's not gonna be 1%, you know, because that's what the statistics are right now. Like less than 1% of tenured faculty in the US are black women. And that for me, I think is a problem. <laughs> and. I think that they're just like, I love this work. I love the work that I do on black feminism and sports. I think that there's so much more space to create new scholarship. And I think that public facing work is one of the ways that you can do that. And I think that it deserves more value within the field. And I think that panels like this is an opportunity to kind of showcase that value. And so I am grateful to be here with so many amazing people. I'm like, I don't know how I got on this panel, but here I am. And so, yeah, thank you for that question. I, I, I think the, the uh, one of the themes that I'm already pulling out is like the importance of community here and the importance of building communities in any way you sort of can. Um, and that, like, I think that lesson goes much beyond, uh, much further than just just public scholarship um, and building communities of support um, as we can throughout the entire, um, throughout everything um, that we do. And we're, we're kind of posturing um, uh, around the key challenges and I've, we've kind of been leading up to this like question and I wanna kind of tackle it directly. The, the question of what are the, the, the key challenges? We've talked about right-wing trolls a little bit on, and these things, but what are the risks and the, the harms and the challenges associated with this public work? Uh, and I'm not looking for like, specific, you could share whatever you would like. I, I, I don't want you to necessarily feel that you have to share your, your experiences, but in your view, what do you sort of see as the, 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 the serious potentials for harm um, um, and risk associated with public work. So I'd like to start with Tracy, if I, if I could. Sure. Um, I thankfully don't have much to add to the conversation about harassment. I have very thankfully flown under the radar for everything that I've done so far. Um, so hopefully we'll see how long that lasts. But I can I can very explicitly echo to um, echo what Letitia was saying about about tenure being a thing um, because I am very junior. This is my first year on the tenure track, but I am on the tenure track. Um, and for me, tenure is a political project that like has something to do with me, but doesn't have anything to do with me, right? Um, for the exact same reasons that she was talking about. Um, 
And so I am very committed to getting tenure because of the, <laughs> the optics sounds bad, but the optics of it, right? The fact that I am a black woman professor in these spaces and I am often the only black professor in most of the spaces that I'm in um, here on campus. Um, that means a lot to the students that are around me. That means a lot to my colleagues in different ways. Um, so that's something that I'm very focused on, right? And I've already been told, again, this is my first year on the tenure track. I've already been told like, you might wanna, and I don't do that much public facing work. Um, it's something that I'm committed to, but I do it in very strategic ways. And I've already been told that like, you might wanna back off on that. Like, you know, like you might need to be focusing on other things, right? And so I think that's something that's really important to me is this idea that, um, that seems to be the public facing work is not scholarship even though we all know that it is, we all know that it, um, it, it is sometimes harder to write because of some of the reasons that we've already been talking about. Um, it takes just as much time, if not more, it's, and it's immediate time, right? Like the fact that you have to write something in two days is like a whole different thing than waiting for a journal for like reviewers to get back to you in six months and then you work on it and then it's another six months. And you know, like the timing of it is also different. Um, so I think that there needs to be a shift in the way that public scholarship, because it is scholarship, um, it needs to be recognized, right? And that's not a small thing, but this is something that I think doesn't only affect people that work on sport, right? Like there's plenty of people in the academy that are working on things that lend themselves to public facing work that should be in the public, that needs to garner conversation outside of the academy. Um, so this isn't an issue that only affects us, right? Like this is something that I think would only help the academy. Um, but of course, the academy is a gatekeeping entity. And so who knows if that'll actually, like, when that happens, how it'll happen, how long it'll take, um, who will be directly impacted by it first or last. Those are all questions that I have all the time. Um, but for me, the very specific risk of it, and it's not necessarily risk, it's just more time has to be placed on writing because I, you, you have to do both right? You have to write the book. I'm, I'm in a book writing discipline. You have to write the book. You have to write the articles. You have to do the service. You have to do the teaching along with the thing that you are actually very motivated by, which is the public facing work. And so it's not either or it's both. And you need to do both in order to be just as quote unquote successful as other people are. Um, and it's often not even counted in the same way. Right. And so for me, that is the very prevalent thing that I'm trying to work through and figure out because I do want tenure for reasons that are much bigger than just me, but because like I want to be a black woman with tenure um, in an anthropology department, um, and that doesn't happen very often. You raise a really interesting point. I think often um, it goes un unnoticed or untalked about the sort of insidious ways in which public scholarship kind of, there are risks, like let's call them behind the scenes, um, backdoor department meetings and, and jealousy from senior colleagues that we absolutely cannot disconnect from a system uh, of uh, white supremacy, from uh, patriarchy, from racial capitalism, from a system of toxic mass, all these things. And it doesn't affect all of Very differently for for other people so it's important to take those those lessons um victoria i'd like to get your insight on on this this question as well about some of the risks associated as you see them i'm going to try to take this in a, a slightly different direction and build off what tracy had just discussed because i think it's valuable in this context um and i want to um kind of frame it around mitigating risk um carlo rotella <laughs> is another person who um, 
that's something that has really stuck with me. And and Tracy was getting at this, this like kind of and both thing, right? I'm in the business of blowing up binaries. And um, he had left a tenured position because he he just needed a break from the academy and was doing a lot of like magazine essay writing and was approached um, by a university for another tenured position. And like told this dramatic story of like walking to the mailbox with the next um, magazine essay that he was submitting to his publisher, not <laughs> putting it in the mailbox, taking it home and then inserting footnotes <laughs> and then sending it to like the best journal in his field, getting it accepted and published. And um, I think that's really telling <laughs> that, um, you know, if, if the guiding light here is doing good work that has impact and speaks to multiple audiences, um, it, it can be and both. Um, and then the, the big lesson of his story was that um, when he negotiated for this new tenured position, he got it in writing that everything counted the same. Um, and I was able to use his story to get a position like that in my university that's trying to you know, <laughs> kill all these kind of tired um, structures to say like my my public facing work constitutes service. <laughs> it's it's serving both my university and the public, um, and that all forms of what I do count the same. And I think another way to think about this too is you know one kind of criticism of our work that we might get is well it's not peer reviewed. Well, I think the process and realization of how many eyes are going to be on your work <laughs> means that you really, really have to get things right. Um, a, a, you know, retraction <laughs> is a, a big no-no <laughs> in that world. And, um, you know, also that since you are the expert, you need to be doing all of that fact-checking and having, you know, our moms and others <laughs> Um, maybe maybe people who share expertise looking at our work, you know, that there are a lot of eyes and hands on um, what we write for public in a way um, that that things better not be falling through the cracks. So I, I think, again, if we can just tell a story about the work that we do and its importance, but also like the work behind it, um, we're going to have a lot more champions than skeptics. Um, another kind of challenge area and mitigating risk area I want to touch on is, um, you know, we do, we engage in, with the public in many different ways. And one of the ways that has been kind of um, the most challenging for me has been live recording stuff, <laughs> whether it's on camera or it's on radio. And um, I think, you know, that takes a lot of training, actually. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that and acknowledge like the, the training work that goes into that as well. Um, and it's a performance, right? So we need people who have expertise with like performing <laughs> um, to guide us, to, to come up with best practices, to know how to plan for this stuff and to, to mitigate nerves. All, all of that matters too. And, um, you know, to be able to kind of detach and just be in the moment and roll with whatever's thrown your way. Cause a lot of stuff will be thrown your way when you're doing live recordings. I've been kind of um, in an, an almost bait and switch situation before where the um, public, it was public radio too, shocking. 
um, where it was presented to me that this will be the format. And then it was suddenly I'm debating somebody <laughs> when that is not how it had been presented to me. And fortunately, the person that I was debating was in the same situation where she was surprised and we followed up afterwards to be like, wow, that was messed up. It was gendered too. The men got the platform to talk about what they wanted to, and then they pitted the women against each other. Um, so it was fortunate that we both were able to follow up after that. So, I mean, but, but more, but the point of that is to be prepared for anything and also to detach emotions from the performative work that you're doing um, and to, to, to get help. Like it's important to take advantage of, you know, so many of our universities now provide these kind of seminars and sessions or funding to get this sort of training with a, you know, a coach or someone. And I would recommend doing those things. Yeah, I definitely think, I think the, the onus is not only uh, on ourselves, actually it's not on us, but it's on our institutions to do the work and support folks who are engaging in this. And that, that's, that could be material in terms of training, media training, but also when things go bad. When things go bad, our institutions need to provide um, help and support, um, not just career, but also personal, like also mental health um, support, which is really important. Now, I could go on all day with questions, um, and I gave myself a hard line of at one o'clock, no matter what, I'm going to open this up to Q&A because I hope that there are some some great questions. So I didn't get through all my questions, um, but actually I got through most of them, which is nice. So I'd like to open it up um, to the floor. Um, if anyone has any questions uh, for anyone on the panel, for just the panel uh, in general, uh, are there any questions out there? The first question off the floor was about institutional support from universities and whether or not universities view public work as part of our jobs. And more importantly, when stuff goes wrong in our public work and we're faced with issues of, say, harassment or any other uh, issues, if and how our universities actually provide material supports. Look, every situation is going to be different with this. I think I, the truth is, and this is my stance, others might disagree with me, and I'm open to that, but um, I don't think we can trust our institutions at all when it comes to this. I don't think that that the, the disposition, like when, we, when I talked about solidarity earlier, the people you can trust are the people you can trust. And I think you need to know that and work to cultivate those kind of relationships because when it comes to institutional hierarchies, there are strategies you can employ. And I, I will speak to what I might suggest would be effective strategies in a moment, but I, I don't think you should trust those strategies. Um, I didn't get a chance to say it before, but I mean, what cancel culture actually is, is, you know, mob, like right-wing trolling mobs systematically trying to get professors fired because of something they said that was absolutely correct. And you would say every day in class because it's correct. Um, and trying to use that as a, as a mechanism for getting you fired from your position because of the political spectacle that comes with that. That's what cancel culture is. And it affects people disproportionately based on um, their subject position and also their relative mm -hmm. power and position in the academy, right? I.e. precarity and so forth. Um, so what do you do to use that word mitigation again, to mitigate that? Cause I think that's the best way to approach it. I think you want to have a strategy before you need the strategy, right? So you want to think about who you trust most within your institution. And, you know, it'd be ideal. I think if you trust, like if you were not the chair and trusted a chair in your department, um, if you felt that there were admi any administrative figures uh, that you had some level of trust with, 
the strategy to me would be you approach that person immediately when you feel like there's a problem. Because the last thing you want is, and you know, and this has happened to me, you know, Duke University gets emails about me um, before I necessarily even know it. So then suddenly there's an administrator who has power over my job who's sort of thinking, looking askance at me and I don't even know it, right? And like, so someone else is setting the narrative about something I've so supposedly done wrong. Um, but if I get on the phone with someone and say, listen, you're gonna hear some nonsense from this troll. Um, here's what I did. Here's why it was appropriate. They're gonna think, yeah, that was appropriate. That's what we're paying you to do. Good job. Um, it's a really different frame, right? So it's not always gonna work, but I think that's the key. Figure out who you can trust most and get ahead of the story. The second question off the floor was about sporting institutions like the IOC, FIFA, or any other large organizations, and whether or not our panelists had received backlash from those institutions for being, let's say, critical of their practices in our public work. I'm obviously not Hockey Canada's favorite person, um, <laughs> and that's a-okay with me because I think I'm doing my job correctly in that situation. and. Um, women's hockey has welcomed me in with open arms and given me carte blanche to, to do whatever I want um, with their players. And so then I, then I know that I found the right space and I don't have to be in all of those spaces, right? So I've prioritized working with women's hockey and, and university level women's teams and things like that. Um, and there are many other people out in the world who can work with the NHL and, and Hockey Canada. So I don't think you need to be everybody's friend. Um, certainly, you, you, there are bridges that you need to, to navigate uh, depending on the work that you're doing and, and where you want to get in. But um, making some slightly more distant friends is is a-okay i think in the work and i think that's just the reality of it as well jules i i i'd like to get your take on this as well <laughs> i'm sorry i i i kind of i have to i have to so please would you share some of your your so i'm sitting on the train coming back from my work to portland oregon everybody's facing the same way this woman is at the front of the train she turns around she points through the crowd directly at me and she goes i am a psychic and you need to watch out for yourself you need to watch out for yourself first and then she gathered her belongings and she scampered off the train leaving a trail of dark liquid behind her and everybody on the train was like what the hell they're kind of laughing oh go 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 drunk person or something like that and i'm just sitting there going holy shit you have no idea that very morning blackwater the, well, the firm formerly known as blackwater uh was they had sent a letter to the nation uh, where my colleague Dave Zirin and I had written a story about how they had been training workers to go to the FIFA World Cup for Brazil. Brazil had sent their security forces to North Carolina to train. So I'm sitting there going, holy cow, like she's, I mean, I got to watch myself. You know, I don't know about first, but you know, definitely got to watch out for myself. So my point is like every single person on this, this panel here and so many people in the room are taking on entrenched power. And entrenched power is not just gonna sit there and take it, they're gonna come back at you. And my guess is you're kind of referring maybe to the International Olympic Committee and group, groups like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, they're one of those groups of, of entrenched power. And um, so long as you're, you're careful, so long as you're fact-based, so long as everything is rooted in evidence, um, then you should be fine. So long as you have your people, I can't, I can't emphasize enough, know who your people are and support your people when when they have troubles 
that will support you in the hard times as well. You might not have like the kind of Twitter personality that like wants to go on the attack, uh, like Courtney was saying, like, if, and I'm not like that either for myself, but if one of my friends starts getting a hard time on Twitter, you can bet um, I, I'm gonna try to, you know, support them. So to your question though, like for me at this point, I mean, I've been writing about the Olympics for well over a decade in a fairly critical fashion. And so like, I'm kind of beyond the point of caring about entry anymore. There might have been a time 10 years ago where, where I, like, I was a little concerned about it. Uh, so I'm not sure I can address your question with the nuance that it deserves um, because I'm kind of, I think, for at least the IOC so far afield now. And, and my positions have really evolved over time, again, always in an evidence-based way. Um, so I think you're answer, asking a really hard question, and I think it's also one, though, that maybe journalists would have insight on because they also are coming up against and butting up against these positions of power. I'm looking at Shireen Ahmed here, um, who does this all the time, and that yet you need access. Maybe, maybe it helps now that Shireen's working with CBC and has this great job, but before, you know, the, you could be isolated perhaps a little bit easier by these entrenched systems of power. If I can interject a little bit as well, like the the importance of community we've been stressing, and I cannot tell you how important it is to just have people you can uh, DM, email, text, whatever. Like when when things are either going wrong, when things are going right, what like whatever, and to be able to mobilize that community in support of yourself, especially when when shit hits the fan, especially when things are going going bad, even just to bounce ideas and strategies off because uh, the, the strategies are complex and there's a lot of moving parts. And if you have 10 people, all who have experienced similar things, perhaps a group DM is a great way to, to chat these things through. And I, I can speak for myself and uh, the end of sport colleagues that we've, we've done that. We've tried to mobilize these little groups and, uh, of support. So both Courtney and Jules, I, I really appreciate that insight. Um, I, I thought it might be helpful to speak a little bit about, since most of us are on university campuses, how to maintain good relations with the athletics folks on our campuses um, and, and how to build those relationships. Um, my kind of most important guiding light is that I want to build bridges between academics and athletics on university campuses, get more academic programming over in athletic spaces and get athletes out of athletics and into more of a actual college experience and environment, reminding them they can study in the library instead of the athletic study, all that sort of thing. Um, and I, I think it, it, it takes a lot of work and it, it means reaching out and it means um, volunteering for things um, and coming to them with ideas. People who work in intercollegiate athletics are unbelievably busy in part because the culture of that place is to create work for the sake of work. Um, and so it, it's not necessarily like productive, but um, the culture there is that you're just completely destroyed by like what is right now the spring sport season. And they're grateful actually um, if there's more people from the academic side. And I'm saying that, you know, cautiously, I don't want to think in that way. Um, just getting involved with athletes, whether it's like, you know, these like life skills, championship life programming is it's actually a great way to tap in and get some really like soft, but absolutely critical work in that space, volunteering to go and meet with your SAC council to see, just to do a check-in and be like, how's everybody doing? <laughs> and also, hey, I'm a friend of athletics and I'm not working in your athletic department. If you need to reach out to someone about something and you're here to do that in an athletics context, know that I'm here, right? 
So it's a lot of that informal, like our dynamic work where they have a safe place to go and talk about that stuff. Um, and, and just letting athletes know that you're not there, letting administrators and coaches know that you're there is, is unbelievably important, I think. And just a really good way to um, keep it at the front of what we're doing, that this is in service of students who play sports, right? So if we're writing about like <laughs> how to make college sports better, we can also be doing the work locally on our campuses to serve those athletes too. Um, and not just when we have them in our classroom, but reaching out to athletics. And, you know, the, the vast majority of people I work with in athletics, administrators, coaches on my campus and nationally, you know, they might not be able to say it publicly, but in private, they're like, thank you so much for talking about this stuff. We need people talking about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely important perspective. This I do not want to put a cap on our discussion, but there's a cap. Please join me in a round of applause for our brilliant, brilliant 